Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Haley Wooden-Hastings, Editor-in-Chief of BIV. If you've been paying close attention to our paper and our site over the past several weeks, you may have noticed a pair of columns co-authored by my guest today, and they look at Clean BC, the province's roadmap around clean policy energy transition initiatives through to 2030. But specifically, the columns on our site and in our paper look at the economic consequences of this plan. Ken Peacock is the Chief Economist of the Business Council of British Columbia, and he joins me today to talk more about this. Ken, great to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Haley. It, uh, we've got some interesting material to recover or to, to cover, so uh, <laughs> so uh, let's let's get into it. We do. And if folks are listening to this podcast, I would encourage you to actually watch it because Ken and BCBC have prepared some slides to help us ground the conversation in something visual because Ken, it can get a bit technical. So on that note, why don't you start us off and explain how you came to be looking at Clean BC in the first place, and then we'll get into what you found. Sure. It's uh, it's probably helpful for your listeners to know and understand the Business Council has been working with the government for, for many years, very, very closely in and around the whole climate and energy file. Uh, a colleague of mine named Denise has been in, engaged uh, right along the way. We worked with them on low uh, low carbon industrial strategy, uh, sort of confirming that BC indeed does have low carbon content export products. Uh, but along the way, uh, our, co our colleagues and the Business Council routinely asked for any modeling results or anything similar that the government had around the economic dimensions, because it was evident that there was going to be some challenges for capital investment and other things from what was being proposed. But it was never really indicated to us that there was any modeling available. And then in the summer, by uh, a, a, a sort of several quirks and flukes of accident, uh, I got engaged and, and dragged into the file to try and respond to some technical papers the government was uh, embarking on to get feedback from industry. And that kind of brings us to where we are now. We, we stumbled upon some modeling results uh, that the province indeed had produced and posted on their website. But uh, we, until er, mid this summer, we had no idea about them. So what I'm going to do here is I'm just going to give you a sense of, of an, the outline of the structure of the presentation, and then maybe you can ask a question or something just to, to help guide us. But uh, when I first came upon the modeling results, uh, it was evident that, that we had to build a presentation to try and convey what we had found. And that was a bit of a challenge. I didn't know exactly how that was going to go. But uh, I decided to kind of do it on the emotional journey that, that we went through in this whole kind of post-midsummer to where we are uh, arc of, the, uh, of time. So very much surprised when we found these results. And that's like I said, because we were told they weren't available. Uh, and we were surprised because of the magnitude uh, of the economic impacts that, that the modeling that the government did shows. Uh, then, shortly after we stumble upon these results, I shift very quickly to uh, a, a, an emotion of concern. I'm an economist, I've been around long enough to know that the economic implications of the modeling results are, are, will be quite, quite significant for young people, for job opportunities, for prosperity, for well-being. So I'm shift to concern. And then a few days later, perhaps a week, I really go through this emotion of hang on a minute. This is not widely known. If if us at the business council working closely with the government don't know about this, I'm pretty confident that not a lot of other people, particularly the public, businesses, First Nations also don't know about this. And then towards the end of the presentation, I just got a couple more slides on some summary thoughts. So I'll pause and take a breath in case you have any questions <laughs> at this point. Well, I think for the benefit of our audience, myself included, it might be helpful to hear from you explain what an economic model or economic modeling is and what it isn't so right. that we can all be on the same page. Yeah, yeah. So this, I'll touch upon it a little bit more in the slides, but it's a great question, Haley, because so what is going on here 
is the government is undertaking modeling exercises to see if it can reduce greenhouse gas emissions the and the interconnections with the economy and so what the modelers do is they run a scenario it's a sort of a business as usual scenario in this case it's called the reference scenario it had carbon pricing at $30 a ton and all the policies that were in place prior to 2017 you put in the parameters exchange rates interest rates inflation uh, what the global economic backdrop is like and you run this scenario to 2030 and then the modelers keep the parameters all the same and they impose the $170 a ton carbon tax and all these other regulation standards and caps. And then they run the scenario again. And this is where we get the reference scenario and the clean BCC scenario. And we can identify, uh, estimate the economic impact from doing so. Now it's important to recognize this is not the business council's modeling work. This is done on behalf of the government, the government commissioned it just to help them understand the whole suite of policies and what the implications are. Totally. Just, and I think, oh, yep. sorry, no, no, just no. to be 100% clear, I think it, it might go without saying, but obviously modeling includes some assumptions too, right? Like there are, there's data that needs to be used, assumptions that need to be made in order to even get some kind of an accurate or you hope is accurate outlook for that's, the that's, future. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Lots yeah. of assumptions need to be made. Uh, and the thing is, when we're talking this modeling, no one is claiming that it's 100% accurate, um, but it's in the ballpark. It's reasonable. This is what economists do, macroeconomists. Um, so by no means can we dismiss the, this effort. <laughs> There's a, been a lot of work and a lot of money spent on it to try and understand it. So yeah, it's for, for an, from an economist perspective, these models are very helpful because you get all the parameters, all the assumptions, all the things in one place. So at least we can talk consistently and try and make sense of what's going on. That's the big advantage uh, of this type of modeling. All right. So with that in place, Ken, a tell little, us a little a bit background. about what you We're found. We're going to give you yeah, a couple slides, a quick, quick background. It is worth just spending a moment to review the, the history of BC's carbon tax in 20. 2007, Premier Campbell announced BC was going to have a carbon tax. And then in 2008, the provincial budget announced North America's first broadly applied carbon tax. It came in at $10 a ton. Now, importantly, it came in as a revenue neutral carbon tax. The framework uh, for it was that if the carbon tax rises, offsetting reductions in the form of income taxes or corporate income taxes were put in place to keep the overall fiscal framework roughly in balance. There were challenges and difficulties with it, but the principle was important to the overall fiscal framework uh, for BC. And then we have five, five dollar, four or $5 increases in the carbon tax that takes us up to 2012. Most people will have kind of forgotten the history about this. It's a blur in the distance past. I certainly did. That we had four or five years while the carbon tax was frozen. This was uh, to allow time for adjustments to take place, investments uh, and other things. It was a bit of a pause and let's see how the economy's doing move. That brings us to 2017 and the NDP are elected. And one of the first acts they do, one of the early legislative acts is to rescind that principle of revenue neutrality. So that is removed in 2017. And then in early 2018, the first iteration of Clean BC comes out. We get a carbon tax increase, then a pause in COVID. Now we're into 2023. A $15 increase in the carbon tax takes it up to $65 a ton. And we get the second iteration of Clean BC Roadmap to 2030. This is where the Business Council, other, other uh, operations turn their attention to trying to address and understand those three, those papers, three consultation papers that the government had put out. I get pulled in to try and help out with this output-based pricing system, technical background paper uh, that the government released. At this point, I also like to say for this period in here, 
many conversations around the business council and just trying to understand the impact of the carbon tax. And I always used to say, you know, it's one thing when it's $30 a ton and government's collecting a billion dollars, but it's now 65 a ton, almost $3 billion in revenue, and it's going up to 170. So there'll be six to $7 billion in revenue collected in a non-revenue neutral manner. And so it, the, the tax take uh, over the next six years is, is set to rise. Now, the other very quick thing I should note here is BC, it's important to understand BC's situation. BC never really had any low hanging fruit for carbon uh, abatement because our electricity grid is already hydro, a 98% hydro. So we can't reduce emissions from switching from coal fired energy power to natural gas like other jurisdictions have. And then I would also add in Haley, that because we've had a carbon tax in place for 15 or 16 years, the if I can use the, th uh, the metaphor again, the medium hanging fruit in the province has also been harvested because companies have invested. So all additional abatement costs and switching and options in the BC economy are high cost and difficult to do relative to other jurisdictions. So that's sort of an important background thing to understand as we move forward. And I'm just gonna quickly review the carbon emissions history in BC. And it's, it, it's also important for context. So the dark blue line there with the dots is the history of BC's carbon emissions. You can see it's relatively flat. So all things considered to my eye, this is a pretty good news story because we've had economic growth and strong population growth over that period, but managed to keep our emissions flat, if not slightly down. But you can see there the emissions targets 40% below that 2007 level, 63.8. And for people uh, listening and, and looking, the last blue dot in the line there in the series is about two and a half or 3% below that 2007 level. So we got another uh, 37 or so percent to go. And this is where it's just a visual appearance thing just by looking at that graph, it feels like that's a stretch. That's only a six or seven year period. And that is a big reduction considering we've only made about two and a half or 3% over the past decade and a half. So that's the context. And now we get into this surprise and disbelief. Should I, did I, am I missing anything, Ailey? I think that sounds good. I mean, one of the takeaways for me and the graphs and slides really highlight this well is that it's only the hard to reach high hanging fruit that remains to be harvested and in a relatively short amount of time. Like we don't have decades, there's seven years until 2030. And so perhaps the surprise and disbelief is going to be how painful that might be and how costly it might be to reach those targets in a relatively short time frame. Absolutely. And this, you, you, the short, the shortness and the aggressiveness you've keyed in on it are a big part of this story uh, of why the economic pain exists. So back to uh, trying to weigh in and help on that consultation paper. Uh, this is middle of the summer. And as I dive into that consultation paper, it becomes evident to me that I am not up to speed in the same way my colleagues are. And I need to go back and understand the whole kind of clean BC roadmap, what this is all about in a much more fulsome manner. So I dig into this document and I start flipping through it and I get to page 21. And as I'm going through it, there's not a lot of material in there that's kind of helpful for this, for what I'm trying to do, shore up our arguments, bolster our input and response with respect to this technical paper. But along the way, I see that there is some climate change accountability reports. So I think maybe there'll be additional information in there that will help me um, through this submission response. Uh, I spent a fair bit of time poking around on the internet. Uh, I did find this link, that, or sorry, on the website, I did find this link down there. So continued to hunt and peck around and came across this part of the website that does indeed show provincial forecasts of greenhouse gas emissions and supporting metrics. So at this point, I'm hopeful that there will be some estimates of perhaps GDP, perhaps output, not really sure at this point, because as I said before, we have been informed that there are no modeling results available. So I don't really know what to expect. 
But as I continue to go further down the website, indeed, it does say that there are is the modeling results posted with two scenarios, a clean BC scenario and a reference scenario. And it also says it has related metrics such as gross domestic products. So at this point, I'm helpful. I don't know what is contained in this file, but I am hopeful that, that I will uh, get some assistance with this material. And if I click on that link for the Excel spreadsheet, this is what comes up. And just because in my past life, I am somewhat familiar with economic modeling, I'm able to identify that as a GDP reference scenario and a GDP clean BC scenario. So the modeling results have been posted in this spreadsheet. And if I click on it, just summarizing the top few lines out of the spreadsheet, that indeed is the size of the BC economy in the reference scenario. This is the clean BC scenario. And I'll do the math for you. The difference between those two scenarios, top line, $28.1 billion. So Haley, this is literally when I'm slipping out of my seat that sunny Monday morning in the summer. I, I, I've been around long enough to know immediately a $28.1 billion setback in the BC economy is very significant. I don't really know off the top of my head how significant, but I know it's challenging. So I turn to what I do, make graphs. It's apparent to me we're gonna have to communicate this to people. So here I plot the history of BC's GDP, gross domestic product. You can see the COVID recession. We do recover, we get back to trend line. And here, just for reference purposes, are the consensus forecasts. So the average of the banks, the business council, even the provincial government, what their sense is for GDP growth prospects over the next four or five years. And if I pencil in the reference scenario out of the government's modeling, it, indeed it lines up reasonably well. These forecasts and projections uh, from the government's modeling would have been done around 2021. So, but 2025 projection reasonably well lined up with what the consensus view is. So I have some confidence in these modeling results. They indeed line up with the BC economy and they seem to be calibrated to the provincial economy appropriately. So then we pencil in the clean BC roadmap scenario and obviously it's a clear flattening out of growth prospects, GDP growth, and indeed $28 billion less. Uh, so now I find myself asking, well, what exactly is driving this result? Why such a big contraction in the economy? So the modeling results usefully have 24 different industry sectors that they estimate GDP for. And if I show the difference across those sectors, again, that's the difference between the reference scenario and the clean BC scenario, you can see the, sm the smaller economy under the clean BC scenario, $28.1 billion. And if we go down all the industry sectors listed, it is indeed the case that every industry sector in the economy is smaller under the clean BC scenario, with the exception of electricity generation and distribution, which of course makes sense because there's a huge amount of electrification uh, gonna take place in the Clean BC Roadmap to 2030 plan. So this is the, the second time I find myself slipping out of the chair because the implications are across the economy. Uh, this is very, very significant. So what is going on here is the foundational export base, caps are being imposed, uh, that investment is no longer flowing in in the same amount that it otherwise would have. And then all the interrelations spin-off benefits that those big export sectors generate are in showing up in other parts of the economy. Households are spending less because of the tax. And this all filters through and it's being captured in the economy-wide uh, reductions. And I should just mention, well, I'll just run through these slides first. It gets a bit worse than that, Haley. So looking at these foundational sectors, BC's export base, not only 
are they smaller than the reference scenario in the modeling work, but they are going to be smaller in outright terms or absolute terms in 2030 compared to 2020. So here we have the heavy industry sector, which comprises mining, smelting, and pulp and paper, and the like. And under the clean BC reference scenario, as investment is dampened down and diminished, we actually have that sector in inflation adjusted dollars smaller in 2030 than 2020. So this is a world of which mills gets closed down, which mills operate at halftime, uh, what communities have people laid off from their jobs. There's just no getting around that. Similarly, with the light industry sector, which is construction and light manufacturing, smaller in absolute terms, not just relative to the reference scenario. And finally, the fossil fuel industry does get a big lift in GDP between 2020 and 2025. But then when the caps are imposed, we see the sector shrink in absolute terms between 2025 and 2030. Uh, very, very serious, uh, not good for BC's well-being and prosperity in, in any way. Um, do you want to pause? Do you have a question along yeah. the way? Oh, or should I keep I, running? <laughs> Let's pause here, give you a chance to take some water as we unpack this a little bit. So I think on the last slide, it's probably no, not a surprise to anyone listening or watching that we might see a decline for the fossil fuel industry, especially when we're talking about a plan around reducing our emissions and really focusing on a cleaner economy. But you noted before, we're expecting to see widespread declines. So why is that surprising? And what explains that $28 billion gap between the reference scenario in GDP and the clean BC scenario? Yeah, that's a... It's a good question. What explains that? They, it, the the hurt and the, first of all, the reduction in uh, the, from what I can understand, speaking with the people who do do this modeling, most of these results are driven from the reduction in, in investment. So just as we uh, most listeners will be aware, we had a multi-billion, tens of billion dollars investment in LNG. You can get hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars invested in mines. This creates jobs, more output. So in the modeling, because of the additional costs and the caps and the standards and all these other policies, the investment is dampened down. The export sector is capped and doesn't grow as much. And because of that, a lot of the spinoff benefits related to the export sector do not grow. And because you don't get that income flowing in from outside of the province, all the other activity is also diminished. So you don't have the people who would be working in the export sector uh, buying as much goods and services uh, on the domestic side of the economy. So there's these negative spin-off uh, factors that trickle through the economy, just in the way those are positive when things are growing, when you're contracting or dampening down growth, they unwind and they have negative implications in, the, in a very similar manner. That's helpful. Now tell us about <laughs> economic so, growth slowing to 0.4%. Walk yeah, us through that. Yeah, so you know, the, one of the challenges here, the 28 billion, 300 billion, it's it's tough for humans, people to kind of conceptualize the impact of these billions of dollars. I think everybody, including myself, is much more familiar with kind of average annual economic growth. So you hear 4%, the, the Canadian economy is going to grow by 4%, which it's not. But if it were, uh, we would know that's kind of strong growth. Uh, if it's going to grow by 2%, that's average. 1% is a little bit slow. And then when numbers are negative, we know that those are recessionary periods. So I just built a stylized graph here just to help convey what's going on just in terms of shifting economic growth. Turns out, if we look at average annual real GDP growth, over the past two decades, spot on two and a half percent. If I look at the average over five year periods, this thin line here, sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. It was lower in the 2005 to 10 period because the Great Recession financial crisis dragged down the average. Uh, and then likewise is a little bit high here, a little bit low here, or lower on average because of the COVID recession. But if we pencil in the reference scenario, uh, the implied average growth rates 
based on the model projections, BC's economy slows to about 1.3% average annual rate. But this is really where we see the slowing. In the clean BC scenario, economic growth in BC slows to a crawl, 0.4% annually. Haley, this is bumping along recession territory. It could be zero uh, at one year. Certainly not strong and certainly not strong when you start thinking about population growth and population growth being much higher than 0.4%, probably around one and a half or two or even two and a half, depending on where we're looking. So when we start thinking about prosperity and well-being, this slow growth rate is very, very uh, concerning and problematic. And indeed, if I turn my attention to trying to understand the implications for incomes, jobs, and prosperity, uh, the, the picture is uh, not bright. So similar graph to the one I just had a moment ago, but here we are looking at real GDP per capita. And when I say real GDP per capita, as an economist, I am just, it is just economist shorthand for well-being and prosperity, how much income is in the economy. Uh, you can count GDP a couple ways, but for the purposes of this presentation and to think about prosperity and well-being, it's useful to think about it as income. About two-thirds of all GDP is wages and salaries and some sole proprietor business owner income flowing to households. So when a person says we don't really need to worry about per capita GDP, it's fine. It, they're saying we don't really have to worry about growing household income. Or if they say we don't, it doesn't matter if per capita income falls, it really is another way of saying I'm not concerned if household income falls, average wages fall. Uh, so it's uh, like I said, it's economist shorthand for prosperity and well-being. That's the best way to think about it. So note here. We have a decade of declining per capita income. So that's a decade of falling prosperity. And the declines really start to accelerate in the second half of this decade, 1.2% annually. So when we look to these accumulating and uh, adding up over time, this is the picture that emerges. We get steady year in, year out reductions in per capita income such that BC's Per capita GDP falls to $47,500. And that's roughly where it was in 2013. So these are inflation adjusted dollars. It, there's no inflation here. This is real purchasing power, ability, households, prosperity, wealth. And it's back almost two decades. It, it is a massive contraction. And I think earlier, in the presentation, Haley, I may have said you know, that, you know, it's the magnitude uh, that is of concern. Economic models may be a little off. It might not be quite as bad or it might be a little bit worse. Difficult to say. But even if we're back to 2016, 17 or 18, uh, this is a, a retreat in well-being that is difficult to contemplate. Um, we, we really don't want to have this world be realized. The modeling is entirely silent on job growth, at least what's produced publicly and posted on the website. But I've been around uh, the economics profession and under working on BC's economy long enough to, to say with a great deal of certainty when GDP growth slows to 0.4%, uh, employment growth will slow to 0.2, 0.1, maybe no job growth, and maybe just kind of gradual job losses over the second half of the decade. Uh, it just Job growth is just less than GDP growth because of uh, productivity gains. So we there is no room for net job growth of any sort of um, healthy proportions or level in those modeling results. It just is not possible. And I will flip to this slide where I definitely did have a hang on a sec moment. I continue to have a hang on a sec moment, uh, but I will pause and see if you have any questions that might help clarify for the audience what's going on. So I think what one of the statistics that's particularly striking is that on average, $11,000 difference, and you're talking about average household 
income, which is significant, particularly when we think about what else is happening in the economy. It's a lot of people dealing with higher costs of living and inflation. But you think too, that will also have its own economic broader impact because it means households will spend less on discretionary items, but potentially making important decisions about where they live or where they invest their money because of how big that number is. Absolutely. And and thank you for tweeting this. I blew over this. I should have spent a little bit more time on this. This ties back to one of your earlier questions, what's driving these results? And when you take income out of households, you're precisely right. They spend less, they have uh, less ability to consume. So that is part of it. And and indeed, I, I should have drawn attention to the fact that per capita income in inflation adjusted dollars falls by $4,600. And if we think about that on a per household basis, 2.2, 2.3 people per household, that's about an $11,000 setback per household. So exactly as you were saying, less ability to afford a home, less ability to save for a down payment, cannot carry the same size mortgage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, thank you for that. Yeah. All right, now you had your way to tick moment. What was the next thing you realized? Yeah, this is this is really when I was like, people do not know about this. We are close working with the government policy, uh, constantly, continually inter- interacting and engaging with the government. And we had no idea that this was the case and that the economic implications were indeed this significant. So back to the document that I started on before I went down that rabbit hole and, and stumbled across the modeling results uh, posted on, on, a web, on the website in the Excel spreadsheet, I did go back to the source document, Clean BC 2030, and, and the government's website, and very much uh, in the case that the government puts forth this BC can have it all, prosperity, well-being, and reduce our emissions. This one in particular from Minister Heyman, we can do better on climate action and economic prosperity. It is not possible to go through the numbers I just ran through and see any additional economic prosperity. It is entirely not possible. So uh, even Andrew Weaver weighing in here, it's a generational plan for future prosperity. I'm sorry, no, it's not. It is not the case that there's additional prosperity in this plan. Okay, fine. Governments are allowed to put their best face forward, uh, promote promote their policies. But when we get to this source document that is supposed to explain Clean BC, I I, I do find myself concerned when only one of the 66 pages in this very, very central document outlining the roadmap to 2030, only one page contains any discussion of the economic implications. And in fact, it may be something like 100 words out of the 66-page document uh, that address the economic dimensions. And then when we read those words, it's difficult to make sense of them, and they do not align with anything about the economy being smaller or any challenges or difficulties in the export base or anything uh, of, like, of the like. Uh, reading those words, GDP increases by 19% by 2030. It's like, no, it doesn't. Um, So I guess if one reads it carefully, we expect investment and roadmap initiative to generate approximately 18,000 and the additional GDP. So perhaps they're referring to here the investments in the roadmap, uh, investments in charging stations, electrification, more transmission lines, that will generate jobs, absolutely. But this is not a reference to net job creation. And then after rereading it off and on for a couple of weeks, I I actually noted that they refer to an 89% increase in GDP by 2050. And again, puzzling, nowhere else in this document is there any mention of 2050. Uh, This is a roadmap to 2030, but uh, presumably the author's deemed it appropriate to reference that large percentage increase out to 2050 um, just to try. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why they deemed it appropriate. I'd be speculating. But I do find it misleading, and I have had to reread this several times to try and make sense of it. Um, And then finally, if we think about the relative sizes, 
and proportions. Much of the pushback we have received since discussing the modeling results publicly lies around, well, we are not fully understanding all the upside opportunities in clean energy, in clean tech. And, and I, that, I don't think that's the case. We do have a pretty good sense of it. But one of the fundamental challenges is, yes, it's growing and yes, it's growing quickly, but it's small. And so if we look at the size of the sector, and these are data right out of StatsCan, no business council estimates, anyone can go find them anytime they like. Uh, what we see is the environmental and clean tech sector is about 2% of the economy, maybe 2.1. Electricity is about 1.2% of the economy and the other 96.7%. That's where the 28 billion comes out of. So those small little slivers have to grow at an inordinate pace and they, they can't even grow quickly enough to try and offset. So the pushback, it doesn't really have any foundation. We cannot get those sectors growing quick enough to offset that damage. And indeed, the modeling already captures some of the upside benefit in, in, its, in, in its intricacies and, uh, and, and modeling regeneration of the connections because we do see the electricity sector expanding. So it's not completely silent on upside benefits. Um, then just a couple additional reflections. This is a, a sort of a recreation of one of the early slides I made, but again, in per capita terms, and we kind of came back in BC, got close to the underlying trend line. But when I look at this as an economist, I see uh, a world where government policy should be squarely focused on getting prosperity and well-being and getting that per capita income back up to the trend line. I'm not saying it's easy, but there are certainly policies we could put in place. We could be more focused on it and we could grow, uh, grow the economy more quickly, attract more investment and help create uh, more high paying jobs. But right now, the plan is for that to move further away from that trend line, reduce prosperity and make British Columbians uh, less well off. And I do use the term plan intentionally because this clean BC thing is, is everywhere. It is the centerpiece of the government's plan. Front and center in all ministerial letters, all economic development plans everywhere. So uh, it is absolutely the case, it's the plan and it's absolutely the case that we should be concerned what it, about what it means for prosperity and well-being. Just two quick technical kind of slides here, obviously a lot of text, but while we are doing this, as Denise, myself, David, I, my other colleagues are working on this in the summer, early September, from an entirely other corner, BMO Capital Markets starts looking at the proposed policy framework here in British Columbia. And they are not using the modeling results. They are simply looking at the regulations and asking the question, if a company can make a, a, a multi-million dollar investment and earn a reasonable return given the framework. And indeed, looking at it from this bottom-up approach, uh, they conclude that when the oil and emissions uh, policies, the OBPS policies are applied in combination with other policies, uh, the financial implications, complexities, and regulatory burden could make further development in BC potentially uneconomic for much of industry. And this is especially the case for operators who can simply shift capital and operations to other jurisdictions. The last sentence, particularly important, we believe these policies could act as an indirect production cap for industry in BC. That is precisely what the modeling results are showing. When I said that they, in absolute terms, the heavy industry is smaller, that is because the emission caps are acting like a production cap. So very, very concerning that from an entirely different perspective, entirely different set of analysis, essentially coming to the same conclusion as the modeling results. And this is just uh, further information from that report indicating one of the challenges also being when we chase investment out of BC and don't produce uh, whatever it might be, LNG, pulp uh, in British Columbia, that production will just flow to other jurisdictions. 
That is a certainty. Uh, if we don't ship a shipment of LNG, another jurisdiction will. That is for certain. And it's just a little, uh, a, a, a little perplexing when we recognize that BC actually has lower carbon content product. So we're at the margin, more BC actually benefits the climate fight and the, the fight to reduce uh, emissions. It doesn't make it worse. So we have sort of tied ourselves up in knots here in BC a little bit, I think. Um, and just finally, uh, the path forward. We are, it's very much early days. It's difficult to know. We don't have all the information on the modeling results, but uh, I can tell you business council members, companies, all businesses right across the province, they've got uh, net zero 2050 in mind. They're working hard towards those targets, uh, but it really is the tightness and shortness and aggressiveness of the 2030 timelines that are causing uh, all, all these economic, all this economic dislocation. Uh, I think this needs to be recalibrated and rebuilt and absolutely in consultation with the public business, First Nations and local governments who so far have not been informed. And I absolutely think it's appropriate to adopt the world needs more BC mindset. Not, we shouldn't be retreating from international markets and selling less of our products and services into international markets. Uh, from where I sit, it's quite the opposite. We should be finding ways to sell more BC into international markets um, and, 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 and try and get that per capita GDP number back up to trend uh, its previous trend and not chase it further away. And uh, th with that, Haley, <laughs> do, we probably need to clarify a few things <laughs> I might imagine. <laughs> well, just uh, on this last point, the world needs more BC. I'm just reflecting on that because the, the emissions targets that we have in BC, you noted, might very well end up functioning like an indirect production cap, which leads to fewer exports, which potentially leads to emissions not being reduced in other parts of the world where they're more widely burning fossil fuels and less able than we are here in Canada to transition to cleaner sources of fuel. Do I understand that right? You have it absolutely right. Yes. So that's one of the big potential global consequences. And of course, the modeling isn't looking at what's happening elsewhere, but it's something to to think about what we're doing here and how that relates to what's happening globally on the emissions front, but also how we can contribute to a global transition to a cleaner economies. Yeah, it's, um, it, you know, and the, the thing is, first of all, BC's share of global emissions, very, very tiny, 0.18 or 0.19%. So we're never going to move the overall emissions count much in either direction. <laughs> we're not going to make a whole bunch more and we're not going to make a whole bunch less. Uh, just be, again, this thing is so much about proportions, Haley. Um, you know, the, tw the 28 million, it's a big number, short timelines. Uh, so same thing with our targets and BC's place in the overall global emissions framework be because we are small. So I'm saying that because I, you know, absolutely more BC at the margin is, is good for global emissions. It will bring them down, but the effect is very, very tiny. So we, we need to be honest with ourselves about that. For sure. One thing I want to clarify, because it we're talking about this $28 billion decrease and GDP decreasing, and yet Clean BC cited GDP increasing by 19% through to 2030. So explain that discrepancy in a little more detail. I know you touched on it, but how can it be that one document is saying a 19% increase in GDP, which sounds great, and a pretty significant decrease? Yeah, it's, I, I think I've, I can't, I probably read that section 20 times at least. And I, I think it's because they are just focusing on the invest in this clean BC document. There is an inordinate amount of, of, of let's call it central planning, taking tax revenue, carbon tax revenue, giving it back to households, giving it to businesses, giving it to uh, clean, be clean technology, clean energy initiatives. Uh, so, so there's a whole 
bunch of that. Um, yeah, and so, so help me out. Where, where was I going with that? <laughs> How can it be that GD, the oh, yeah. modeling suggests the decrease, but the document suggests a pretty notable increase? Right, right. The 19, yes, yes, the 19, the 19%. So, yeah, reading it carefully many, many times, I think that is indeed what they're talking about, the, the spending and the investment and this rejigging <laughs> a, a central planning-like almost uh, approach is where you get that additional investment. But but again, I've read all the technical documentation, the spreadsheet bent over backwards, trying to understand. I don't know where it comes from. So I'm speculating a little bit, but I think it's really the challenge of not looking at this on a net basis, just looking at the upside in one narrow, one narrow little segment of, of the economy. And again, this speaks to the people who don't really know about the story. Haley, I've given this similar kind of presentation to well, almost at least 20 groups now. And without exception, the, uh, the response and, and, and the look on people's faces is always the same. It is shock. It is disbelief. And, and there's a bit of a sense of, there must be something missing. You know, there's got to be an off-ramp that makes this whole story not quite as bad as, as it is when it's just laid out in this manner. I've been looking for off-ramps. I've been looking for any reasons. They just aren't there. This, to meet our GHG reduction targets by 2030, six and a half years from now, we you got to clamp down on the economy and reduce growth and make and make the economy not grow as much. That's the hard reality uh, of this plan. Well, I'm talking about off ramps and these aren't my off ramps, but as you know, we had a response to one of the BCBC columns from a co-chair of the province's climate solutions council. I've spoken with her. I've also spoken with minister George Heyman and what I've heard back and what was in the column was that, the snapshot afforded by the modeling is not taking into account the benefits that will flow from this transition that's being brought about by clean BC. And as we can see in the sectors, I mean, technology isn't listed there. Uh, most services aren't listed there. So is it possible from an economist's point of view that this really, this modeling is intended to look at decreases and where the policies will be having a negative impact and then it hasn't taken into account economic benefits that are likely to come. I and mean, walk me through the thinking and how people who are not experts in economic modeling might think about this. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And we've heard similar things back. I, I assume you heard that when you were talking to the minister. From yeah, the minister so I, and from Dr. Nancy Oluweiler. Who and from Dan Nod, yeah, because yeah, we've heard yeah. for that as well. They, um, yeah, so what's going on here is they are suggesting that the economic model is unable to capture the new industries that emerge. And that is absolutely a legitimate point because the economic model is calibrated on history. And so just in the same way, no one could have predicted just how widespread the internet was and how much it was going to transform our lives in 2000 uh, to where we are here in 2020 same sort of reasoning and argument they are putting forth. So they are suggesting these technologies are gonna come and we're gonna get more growth than the model can capture. That is the case. The problem and challenge with that is, you don't get too much of that over a six year period. This is a multi-decade kind of phenomena, technological change. Uh, so you might get a little bit. The other problem with it is a whole bunch of the upside jobs so in response to uh, th th them suggesting that we have not adequately accounted for this upside lift, um, I have seen several studies, Dr. Nancy Olweather, who you mentioned, points to a study that suggests BC will see something like 300,000 new clean tech jobs by 2050. And this is in the BIV column. She referenced this as 2050. But uh, if you just think about that for a moment, 2050 is far off. And so if you go and re read that source study that she cites, 
it turns out that that's based on 6% annual growth. So that study has numbers for 2025. So if we grow the, the number of clean tech jobs currently in BC or clean energy jobs currently in BC, by that 6% number, we get around 25 or 30,000 jobs, let's say. <clears throat> so in other words, 90% of the 300,000 jobs that Dr. Oweiler cites come after 2030. So it's a little bit of a bait and switch. There's all these great jobs, but they're way out in the future. We are concerned about serious job losses and serious impact to income over the next six years. So um, I, I tend to discount those. And the other thing, Haley, and I don't want to make the answer too long here, but the other thing that is going on there is that count of clean tech jobs that is supposedly supposed to be so large that it's going to make the 28 billion thing not that important. Uh, that is an aggregate job count. So also at the same time, what is going on is this study, which is fine as long as we're clear on definitions, this study is counting a worker as a clean energy worker when they transition from driving a fossil fuel vehicle to an electric vehicle. The same thing happens for manufacturing, building of these vehicles. When a worker builds an electric vehicle instead of a fossil, they become a clean tech worker. Um, and the number that Dr. Olwa decided is not a net number. So it's only the upside shift. So it total, it's a big, big inflate, inflated number of the upside impact. If we're kind of honest about these upside effects that we have supposedly not taken full account of, they're nowhere near as large. And, and in fact, they already are largely taken care of and incorporated into the model when you consider many of the jobs are transition jobs and things. So the pushback is not substantive. Uh, there's also some pushback around some placeholder modeling assumptions, and we have bent over backwards trying to understand those. Uh, people can read both our columns and our recent BIV response. Uh, that's going in BIV. Uh, it, that's a bit perplexing as well. Probably too too uh, too nuanced and challenging to get into here. But um, people who are interested can can definitely read along and 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 try and make sense of what's going on. And I'll make sure that all those columns are linked to here with this conversation, so people can easily access those. Now, one other theme that's come up, Ken, is this idea that doing nothing is not an option. I think we're all on the same page that we're noticing more dramatic and devastating climate events. Um, there's a lot of consensus generally in society that moving toward cleaner economies would be favorable. Some debate about the timeline, though. Uh, could you not just look at this plan and say, well, it's needed. It's needed to meet our targets because we need to respond to the reality we're seeing as it relates to the environment? Or do you think it's possible and maybe what you're suggesting with this slide that you know the 2030 could be moved uh, to ensure that we work toward our climate goals while also not experiencing pretty acute economic pain in the short run because it's it seems like in a transition like this costs will be incurred i mean even just the carbon tax increasing is a cost that's going to go up and up if it stays the same so there will be costs but it maybe doesn't need to be as painful because of the short timeline yeah absolutely and and i think right up front everybody agrees lined up climate is is changing and the weather is 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 getting more catastrophic we see it all the time i don't think any anyone doubts that uh but the question arises given the costs that the clean bc roadmap to 2030 is going as it's currently envisioned is going to impose on the economy um the modeling results are capturing something and, and they're very, very substantial negative economic implications that flow from it. So if, from a sort of an economic perspective, the question arises, given those costs, is it worth the rapid and aggressive pursuit of reducing our emissions uh, in that manner? And, and does one really, really think that if BC does hit our targets in 2030, that there will not be a need 
to budget for extreme weather events. I would suggest we still will need a big forest fire fighting budget. I will suggest we probably will st still have floods. We still will have hot weather, irrespective uh, of what BC's climate emissions are. That doesn't mean abandon our emissions, but it might mean let's not impose this level of cost and destruction on our economy um, when it is certainly the case that we will still have extreme weather events in 2030 uh, one way or another, even if we did recalibrate our timelines, whatever that might look like. Um, so I, I think that needs to be sort of on, honestly and, and discussed in a, in a more fulsome manner. I, 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 again, I, I absolutely appreciate all countries and jurisdictions need to do their part. But it, when you also consider that BC's products are, are slightly better for the global emission picture. Uh, yeah, it might it might be worth a, worth a more fulsome conversation. As we wrap up, Ken, I'm for anyone who is looking at this, listening to it for the first time, they haven't benefited from one of your presentations that you've given to date, a business leader who's now trying to wrap their head around what this actually could mean for the economy, their industry and their business. Do you have any recommendations or guidance on what those in the business community ought to be doing now as some of this information and the arguments you're putting forward are coming to light? I, yeah, I, I think people, uh, business operators, households, First Nations, um, uh, local government, all, everybody should, can legitimately ask government and government officials about this, about the economic implications, and, and also ask whether he or she or they were aware of it um, and, and suggest that a more fulsome discussion of the potential negative economic implications, depending on time and pace and tax rates and whatnot, uh, is warranted. Because, you know, Haley, at the, at the end of the day, uh, I'm I'm an older person. I, I'm dec decades monitoring BC's uh, BC's economy, so you know I'm well advanced, and I I will be okay, and people in my age group will be okay for the most part. This is a real problem for young people. Uh, there is not a lot of opportunity, not a lot of jobs. I know I've said that a couple times, but I've been around economic modeling, GDP per capita, well-being, prosperity, all this data and numbers long enough to know this, this is not a, a bright and hopeful future. Very concerning. The other thing I would note is we already have falling per capita income here in BC. The economy is not particularly robust. The projection is for per capita GDP to fall over the next couple of years. Uh, so the plan is just to, to make that worse. So absolutely ask people you know the other thing that's come to my mind as, as over the past couple of months as we worked through this you know we had a referendum on the hst the hst would have been positive for investment and positive for the economy and probably lifted productivity and per capita incomes a little bit over time it wasn't going to save save everything and make the world you know instantly better but it was going to be positive and we had a referendum on that. Uh, we have had almost no public discussion on this, and it is hugely devastating to prosperity and well-being. And you and I have not even really gotten into the impacts on households. Households pay more in this world. Uh, I've looked at some numbers in the back of the budget and trying to do some projections. Thousand bucks more easy a year in carbon tax, maybe twelve hundred. Um, these are kind of rough numbers. Don't don't uh, don't take them as firm, but you know that is more than a typical household was going to pay under the HST. The sort of mid mid class middle road, hundred thousand dollar a year household income, two kids. Uh, I, I believe, if I remember correctly, in the HST world, it was. 4,500, maybe 4,000 more. So the, so the impacts on households are also large, in addition to this devastation of the economy and the export sector. So I, I, I really do scratch my head how we have not had a, a, a more complete discussion 
and or even some sort of well, no, it's not a referendum item, but but like I said, consultation, discussion, uh, and, and informing public is, is necessary. Well, I appreciate you having the discussion, at least with me, and hopefully it does reach some more business community members and leaders and who do their own research. I'll link to the columns that you've done as well as the response columns so people can sort of try and get a sense of what this might mean for the economy. But Ken, as always, it was great chatting with you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us on. Or having me on. I'm Haley Wooden Hastings, Editor-in-Chief of Business in Vancouver. I've been speaking to Ken Peacock, Chief Economist at the Business Council of British Columbia. Thanks for tuning in to Business in Vancouver. We'll be back next time.